0: This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by Bella Catering. Bellacatering.com.au, one of the best catering companies in Sydney, but in the time of COVID, in this garbage, fire, doom scrolling, the world is ending as we know it, year of 2020 has meant that this terrific and awesome family catering company, led by Glenna Maria, who I love and adore, um, has pivoted to home delivery. So if you want, while you're in New South Wales, while you're in the Sydney area, if you want great home-cooked feeling, delicious catering to your home, Bella Catering's is where you got to go. They're absolutely amazing. They have a variety of cuisines. They're incredible. BellaCatering.com.au is where you can dial them up, find them, order something. Hell order before the second wave gets here, and order seconds for the second wave. They're the best. Thank you for listening. We have a banger of a week for you. Now, onto the show.
1: I was amazed by Woodward and Bernstein's resolve. There's nothing glamorous about what they were doing, but I thought it was important to portray the tedium, the hard work. And the feelings about the film,
2: from a studio standpoint, was non-commercial. Newspapers, typewriters, phones, mm-mm. Washington, uh-uh. And Bob did something which was brilliant. He said, these guys, even though they're from separate, you know, diverse backgrounds, think of them as
1: one, particularly when they're interviewing people. He said, let's learn not only our own minds,
2: but let's memorize the other guy's lines. What's this here? What are you what? About Sloan? Sloan. Sloan was the treasurer of the committee to and read. His wife life. did what? His wife is pregnant, and she made Sloan quit because apparently he no longer wanted to be a part of it. it. We've got to go see Sloan. OK, make a note of it. Right. So what do we got? Where is, that? Where is that match?
1: Each of us would come in at any time. We would take one half of a sentence. He'd finish it. How do we know that? Because she said it right here. he said, at the time of the break-in, there was so much money floating around that I know that you weren't that part of it. So I said, you mean-? I thought it was one of the most exciting and most successful things that we did in that film.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All The President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Yes, it is me. My voice is slightly deeper and huskier today, but I promise you that it is still me. Um, today, I, I've discovered this man, we were just talking before we were recording, and he said... To me, I, I'm I'm disappointed that I discovered One Heat minute after it was already over because I would have loved to come on the show, and I feel like I've discovered this guy a, a kindred spirit in a strange way. He's an author um, of The World Only Spins Forward, a co-author, sort of the definitive account of the production and the enduring, uh, uh, the enduring power of Angels in America. He's working on a book called The Method, a narrative history of The Method acting. He's a co-host of Slate's working podcast where they talk to just working Americans about what they do and how they do it. But if you were to read the description to his Shakespeare podcast titled Lend Me Your Ears, it might sound so scarily familiar to this show that you would think that I maybe stole it off of him, or we stole it off of each other, or something. Because I will just say this: I will just re- I will just read this to you, and you guys can judge for yourselves how much we were maybe like uh, touched by the same muse, if you like. Which is, I'll read this part of the description. In Shakespeare's own time, England was undergoing enormous political and social upheaval. The country was racked by famine and plague, threatened by religious violence, and confronted with political crises whose resolutions were often unclear. Shakespeare also wrote at a time of vigorous censorship. It was literally against the law for the theater to directly comment on current events. All plays back then had to be approved by an official demand change to scripts or ban them outright. And I'm going to skip. So what political currents are likely influencing Shakespeare while he's writing his plays? What can we learn about our present political moment from reading his works now? How have theater makers wrestled with staging of politics from shakespeare's plays those are the questions we're investigating in lend me your ears my new podcast miniseries for slate my guest it's a distinct pleasure to welcome isaac butler to the show isaac thank you so much for doing the show
1: oh man it is so great to be here blake thank you so much can i mention one other weird correspondence which uh is actually why i'm, I'm so excited to talk about all the president's men um I, in 2015, I co created a a live multimedia work with the film designer Peter Negrini and the composer Darcy James Argue uh, for the Brooklyn Academy of Music about conspiracy theories Ugh. in the American popular psyche. And um, Alan, Alan Pacula's three great 70s paranoid masterpieces are like fundamental texts. Uh, that influence that work. And we are currently adapting that show for to, so it can stream. So we're re-editing it. We're re-recording new material and stuff. And so, um, we had to do some reshoots of some stuff this weekend, socially distanced with masks, very safe. Don't worry. And, um, uh, so it was great to be able to revisit all the president's men because in talking to Peter about what it needed to look like, I'll be like, "Remember that scene where Robert Redford is running up the stairs of the parking garage? It's gotta like so got to look like, it, like it's, that."
2: It's, yeah. So, yeah, this is ma- been... massive rack focus set to nothing to emptiness because yeah. a rack, there's nothing like a rack focus to emptiness. Oh yeah, look, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's it's so strange. I was just getting ready for the show and I was just like. Uh, and and, and how, uh, earlier this week, I was listening to the um, to Shakespeare's podcast, and knowing how um, inspired by Julius Caesar you were, and that's my favorite Shakespeare play. It's my favorite Shakespeare play because of all the things that it can say. And actually, one of my sort of seminal texts as a, a film viewer, there's a terrific movie. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but I just want everyone to know about it, just because it, it it's it's a, a great entanglement of Shakespeare and contemporary society is called Romeo um uh oh no sorry caesar must die and it's uh it's basically uh a film adapt- adapting julius caesar's play with a maximum security prison with real italian prisoners um uh, uh made by the uh, these two italian brothers the taviani brothers and so it starts out with like this semi documentary feel where they go in and they cast the play full of all these maximum security prisoners. And then it kind of like the documentary falls away and then it just becomes Julius Caesar with these guys shooting in this maximum security prison. And I no, just, that's think, wild. I think it's just one of the most, you know, if if this show rarely does a big recommendation outside of what we're talking about, but it's just one of the most incredible pieces of cinema that uh, I, I could ever hope to anyone to view and, and enjoy. But I've got you here in the American suburbs in the world of Alan J. Pakula and Robert Redford's 1976 masterpiece, all the president's men. And, uh, and I'm, I'm thrilled to talk to you about it. You, you've said, you've already talked to your bona fides up top, but um, how important is this movie to you and everything you're doing? Because I feel like this is a, this is a film, I think that your show sort of tests the premise of this entire show, which is really great works of art, continue to speak through the ages and they just continue to find new relevance. And I feel like that's, that's what in both of the long form minute by minute shows I've been doing is just how, how much enduring texts do that.
1: Uh, Yes, absolutely. And I think that's even more true of the kind of slate of American films made in the, you know, in the new Hollywood period, right. In the, in the moments leading up to Nixon's uh, uh, downfall on Watergate, and um, during the Church Commission and its aftermath, which was a uh, for those of your listeners who might not know what the Church Commission was, it was a Senate Commission that uh, post Watergate to basically be like, okay, let's let's clean house, let's investigate. What the U.S. government has been up to and let's, you know, sunlight's the best disinfectant. Let's expose it. And it exposed a a, a lot more than I think they expected to originally. And you can see the the how that sort of permeated the American psyche on in the films of that era, many of which were shot by Gordon Willis, interestingly enough. Um, And uh, uh, that's, of course, true of, of all the president's men. And we are going through a similar crisis of lawbreaking and illegitimacy right now here in the United States. And so I I think these movies of that period really speak to this moment that we're in. And, and that is, of course, since we just went through this sort of weird shadow play of impeachment, that's of course true of uh, everything going on with president Donald Trump and all the president's men. I mean, there, there just couldn't be a, a, a film that feels more relevant really than one about um the time the journalists did their job and exposed the crimes of the president and something actually happened as a result.
2: It's 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 uh it's a funny line that it, it grows funnier to me that and folks haven't heard it yet because I've pre-recorded an episode with the great Matt Seitz, who's one of the editors of Rogerebert.com and just a terrific critic for New York magazine and vulture and many many other places in his career and m- <clears throat> excuse me uh, Matt Matt said to me Blake, this movie doesn't feel to me anymore like the deeply authentic story of journalists holding politicians to account. He goes, it feels like a fantasy. It may as well be right. Star Wars on the planet that we're on now because, you know, it's it's just, the events are so crazy. And I think that's what I think that entire era, the, the Nixon, the downfall of Nixon and the impeachment and then the church hearings the Watergate hearings, all of that, like that... It, you know, uncovering and unearthing all of the, the sort of weirdness that was going on. It feels like the same tumult that we're in now because you've got like over the top of the world is everything that's happening with COVID-19 in your country. You've got like hurricanes in our country. We've got out, we had the fires earlier in the year. You've got like political upheaval, social upheaval, um, unemployment, you've got all these factors that just seem like they're over the top. And it just feels like those of us who are, students of history and just anyone who's a student of history. I don't mean that you're like attending an institution, but just people who are aware of history are like right now, lots of good things can happen when there's a big event that you can rally together, but there's also a lot of messing around and weirdness and bad things can happen. And so, yeah, absolutely. and so if it just feels like that's the moment we're in, it just feels like you just always want to like, let's just quickly go over here in this little corner where it doesn't seem like there's much activity. There's probably something weird going on.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know things are weird when Nick Curios is like a voice of conscience. Uh in, in right, right? Then you're like, what's 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 happened that Nick Kyrios is the moral compass of our time?
2: I I speaking as an Australian, I don't actually think that any Australian a year ago could have said that. Even five months <laughs> ago, there's no Australian that would have said he's a voice of reason. Everyone's like, this guy is an infuriation because of his ripping talent and just. Absolute, all over the map kind of behaviours, but yeah, very funny time, very funny time indeed. And also to speaking in your country, talking about a platform, you know, never, you know, there's always those phrases and don't mix sport with politics, etc. You know, as we're recording this, we're sort of 24 hours away from what started with the Milwaukee Bucks team striking and refusing to play game five, of the playoffs in the bubble, in the NBA bubble in Florida. Um, and I mean, probably there's maybe not been a more powerful use of, uh, protest in sport Um, in my, in my lifetime, you know, started with Colin Kaepernick taking a knee and these guys actually stopping a game, stopping game five of of a playoff to say, no, we've had enough. We can't in a good conscience. Um, go and perform and and do what we do with every with all of the social and, and and civil upheaval that are happening in our country right now.
1: Yeah, and it's it's spread from there in the sport that I clearly follow in tennis. Uh, Naomi Osaka withdrew from a tournament, um, saying that you know as a black woman, it just didn't make sense for her to be playing.
2: Yeah, so this is <clears throat> this is now why this film you know for, for me it was a, is such an urgent undertaking of unpacking and going through and getting great guests such as yourself to talk about it because I just feel like right now this moment and everything that's going on it, there's such a deep connection and we're allowed to talk about basically any and everything which is a great part of it so we are now at the 89th minute for folks um, at home it's one hour 28 on your uh, one hour 28 I Minutes mean, on your dial, on your Blu-ray, on your DVD, on your HBO Max. Very fortunately, unlike my previous project, there aren't like 25 versions of this thing that you're going to have all over the map. This is the one version. So Isaac and I are going to watch it right now together. You guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come and unpack it for you. House. That's why
1: we'd like to see your husband. Facing certain criminal charges, that might be brought against some people that are innocent. We just feel that it would be really, really for his benefit.
0: No, it's not.
1: No, it's not. Deborah, tell them to come in. Thanks. Hi, Carl Bernstein. How, you do?
2: How, How, do? You it? How, How do you do? Hugh Slumber. would Woodward. I appreciate
1: you giving us time.
2: You know, the reason that we're here basically is that we talked to certain people who have indicated that the reason you left the committee was because you no longer want to be a part of it.
1: All right, maybe there's a legitimate explanation for why the money was handed to Lydia Mitchell's aide. Try and understand this. I'm a Republican, I am too. Well, I believe in Richard.
2: One of the greatest, who knows
1: knows what the second half of that word was?
2: (laughs) One One of the greatest, uh, double takes in cinema history. And you got it, Isaac. I'm so glad there's so many. There is so much to unpack in this moment, um, just the comp- from the composition to the morality to just the candor. And mm-hmm. in that final moment, I'm a Republican too. It's one of the best. It, it, if, if there was a coffee in Carl Bernstein's often coffee-addled um, hand right then, um, there would have been a spit take. It's, it's uh, what a uh-huh. terrific minute.
1: I'm I'm glad if I wasn't going to get a split diopter scene, that I got a good double take.
2: Yes, you got you got a di- Everyone, it's it's you're either spoilt for riches, you know. Oh, great! I got one of the fifty diopter shots that are in this movie. Or God damn it, Blake, why didn't you assign me a diopter shot? There's so much I want to talk about with diopters.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: Uh, so here we are, the uh, the boys. Carl Bernstein, Bob Woodward, Dustin Hoffman, and Robert Redford are standing at the door of Hugh Sloan um, waiting to try and get through. Because after talking to Judy Habak-Miller, who we only know as the bookkeeper from the movie, you know, this is a guy who is is seemingly a good guy in, a, in, in amongst this organization and has made his own moral choice, uh, you know, influenced by his wife, that if... I can't I can't stay here and I can't stay in this organization and consciously know that all of this political fuckery is going on so I'm out.
1: Um. Yeah, exactly. Um and you know it's really fascinating because Sloan is a big mystery to them and I think he remains kind of mysterious throughout the film even though he seems very plain spoken you know he of course does this weird double cross of them on this technicality later on in the in the film um that's difficult to parse both why he did it and what the substance of it is um but uh and that's only emphasized here by the use of space and light in that when we see meredith baxter the great meredith baxter soon to warm hearts everywhere on Family Ties, Um, she's very brightly lit. And then when it cuts to the the shot behind her head so that we can see Woodward and Bernstein, we don't actually see the inside of the house. It's entirely shrouded in shadow and it's mysterious. We don't actually know what they're in for. And it's not until she says, oh, you can come inside that then we actually finally get to see the environment. You know, the film does... All sorts of great stuff with environments. Glenn Kenny was talking about this a couple episodes ago um, with all the objects placed between Dustin Hoffman and Jane Alexander. Um, and, of course, there's the famous crane shot in the Library of Congress. Um, and this is a much less dramatic one than the Library of Congress moment, but it's still creating tension even though they're just going to some suburban dude's house it's creating all of this tension about what are they going to discover and who is this guy simply through light and set
2: and the great beginning parts of this minute is it is meredith meredith back to is completely in silhouette so you get the boy's faces just like going sort of playing their game, doing the strategy that we've now established they do for every one of their interactions um, about how they're going to, how they're going to penetrate Meredith Baxter as just sort of the gatekeeper of this, this conversation. And there's this amazing moment of her as Debbie Sloan where unlike so many of the silhouettes that we saw or the blank faces that we saw with doors about to be slammed, the camera just comes back to her rests on her. You know, she's a very, very beautiful woman, but very, like she's got such a wholesome face and just very honest. And you just look at her face and there's this reflection of like all of this shit and pageantry that you guys are trying to do. It just doesn't cut with her. And it's so nice to watch her go. No, it isn't. This is no benefit to us. This is no benefit. We're going to have to make a play for the American people and for your story that is going to put our family at some form of risk, whether it's a small risk or whether it's a large risk. And man, then watching Hoffman go, holy shit, we've been caught. And Redford as Woodward just go, yeah, you're right. There's just something right there in that moment. That is the electricity of this movie. It's like, sometimes we have to try and get our feet in the door. And when we can actually just shed all those, that all that facade and come down to what is the naked actual purpose of our discussion. It's really nice. And uh, that's just the beginning of this minute.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I love about this movie and that I loved about rewatching it is it is this kind of journey they go through in learning how to manipulate people and learning how that works. Um, It is the major arc in some ways of them as characters and it's all the more powerful for Goldman's screenplay never really highlighting it or discussing it. You could imagine if the movie was made today, they'd be like, Bernstein, you always like to push people too far and I come at them with compassion but we can really learn from each other. Uh, Instead, it just plays out in action, right? So, you know, they're, they're in this moment. They're not they're fairly green reporters. They're certainly too green to be reporting something of this scale. So they're kind of learning on the fly how to manipulate people, right? And it's this really great thing where in the previous minute, sorry to talk outside of our minute, but you know, in the previous minute, she said, this is an honest house. Yes. And you can see on Hoffman's face, him being like, he's he's quick-witted enough that instead of trying to blow bluster his way in, he's like, now I know how to play it. And he says, you know, oh, that's why we're here. We want to talk to your husband. We want to, we're worried that he might be unfairly targeted. And then Woodward fucks up by gilding the lily. Like, that's the thing. It's like, it might have worked. Bernstein's play might have worked, but Woodward gilds the lily and she calls him on it and then, he solves it the same way he does earlier in the film with the woman in the newsroom who's dating the staff member, or was dating the staff member of Creep, which is that he he retreats into his kind of waspy
2: integrity,
1: you know? <laughs>
2: and, it's, it's, and the he, Lindsay Crow, it's the Lindsay Crow scene as Kay Eddie, and he just goes, no, I'm not going to...
1: Yeah, no, never mind. It's not worth it, right? And here he does the same thing where it's like he's a vulnerable... Nice guy, and it reminds me. uh, Apologies if you've talked about this already, and you can just cut this and we don't have to talk about it. Uh, about you know that Robert Redford was up for the lead in the graduate, yes, but I love it, yeah. And 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 um, Mike Nichols didn't want to cast him. And in um, Mark Harris's amazing book, Pictures of the Revolution, Mike Nichols recalls why, and he says, um. There's you know, he there's nothing angsty about Robert Redford. and I, I said to Bob, you know, like Bob, you've never been turned down by a girl, and he literally could not understand what i was talking about and so he couldn't play benjamin in the graduate and you see actually some of that here in this in this thing that that hoffman is angsty and he's conniving and he's sort of openly manipulative and he's trying to figure this stuff out and then redford is able to just be sort of handsome and honest and and that contrast between the two of them is what gets them in the door
2: yes and from the background hugh sloan I mean, it's almost like a socially distant hang um, before socially distant hangs is, is, is they, they stage themselves in this space and Hugh Sloan's talking about things and, and they're trying even really before they sit down and get comfortable to sort of just, just sort of test the waters. It's about oh, Lydia and the money and the, and you can sort of, it's, we can go through every line of dialogue but it's like it feels sort of incomprehensible to me because once they set the table if you like they sit down and they stage this slow slower conversation Hugh Sloan does not a lot of talking like he's only saying a few words and the guys are just rapid firing when he actually starts talking which is the following minute um obviously it gets into the sort of juicy bits but right now in this moment it's just I think we're teetering on whether this guy is actually going to say anything at all because he's so cagey. Like, as you said, shrouded in shadow. He's kind of hunched. He's there. He's, the way he's shaking their hands, it's kind of uh, arbitrary. They walk into you, this you, room and he sits on the complete opposite side. He doesn't want to be sitting close to them at all.
1: Yeah, and I think you don't see his face for a little bit at first, right? You hear his voice, then you see him in shadow and then you see his face. There's all these tiny things, uh, uh Pacula and Willis are doing to create narrative tension. And they do it all over the place because it's a story whose ending you already know. You know, um uh so so they do all this stuff to just like make you feel in your limbic system, you know, beyond your conscious uh understanding of a feel a little bit tenser. Uh, and so when he appears played uh, by um eventually admitted pederast Stephen Collins, um uh, who I'm sort of bummed at how good he is in this scene since you know Yeah Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it's interesting that moment. They're both so excited and trying to figure it out that actually um, the lines syntactically break down. Um, Woodward says this really weird thing. He says, maybe there's a legitimate explanation for it and then doesn't complete that thought. And then says the money was handed to Lydia Mitchell's aides. But he doesn't like it's two half thoughts. The second thing is not a legitimate reason, right? He's like, well, maybe there's a legitimate reason for it. I I mean, we know, you know, it's missing this. I mean, we know type thing um, because they're just so stoked to get in there. It's like uh, and they want to do this kind of good cop, bad cop thing. And they haven't quite figured out what to do because like us, they don't know who they're really dealing with in some ways dealing with the 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 more powerful and grosser people in the nixon administration is easier because it's just an openly combative relationship you just have to provoke them into saying something that you can print yeah but here you're like is he a Nice guy. Like, do I like him? What am I going to do? And it's, it's a complicated thing. You know, the first time I saw this movie, I wasn't a journalist. I had never done any journalism the first time I saw it. And I will admit to not really getting it. I mean, I got it on a craft level, but I was like, I don't see what the big deal is. But the second time I watched it was after I had reported out a few stories and I was like, oh no, this is actually a masterpiece because it really captures in this heightened way, this kind of like, you know, how do I talk to these people? And how do I also do that and live with myself? Uh, and, and, you know, all those complicated questions around journalism and ethics. And I think this scene's, are, even just this minute, is a real masterclass in watching those those two characters
2: navigate those questions. And so much of, you know, so much of the movie is about growth and these guys not being completely, perfectly crafted in the way that they approach things. And that's what I love too is because, as they get better at this, their conversation, the way that they tackle these interactions gets better. The good cop, bad cop, the way they feel each other and intuit what the other one's going to do. And then maybe inject something into a dialogue that they can. But like you said here, it's, there's almost a shock and a stutter step of, you know, we're right here. um, We've got to try and get some of this stuff out. And also Jane Alexander's bookkeeper has clearly, excuse me, clearly helped them blow this story wide open. So now that she's helped them blow this story wide open, they almost at a, at a baseline have to say, well, she told us the truth with so much that he must be a good guy, I guess. But when he's in the room, as you said, there's all these calculating little moments of tension, visual tension, spatial tension, and, and even you know, it's, there's an old joke. I can't remember where it's from. So forgive me for, for, for paraphrasing it without credit, but someone used to say, and I, and I, and I feel this deeply because I was a, I was a kitchen hand at a wedding venue when I was in high school. And they used to always say, if the wedding had the song by Olivia Newton, John, I love you. I honestly love you. Like that was their wedding song. It was like, that relationship was doomed from the outset because you were saying right up front that I love you. No, really? I do. Like, honestly, it feels like it's something a liar would say. So everything about this whole situation, this is an honest house. You can either take that at face value and she feels so open and honest that it's great. But then you get in and, and there, there he is. Hugh Sloan, Stephen Collins, like hunched up in shadow being a bit weird being a bit cagey and it's like what what is actually going on here so you can the stutter step just underscore this is smart like it's it's them stumbling over their own words it's trying to figure out how they're going to approach it and really at the at the death of the minute when he says i'm a republic you know i'm republican too and you watch that double take it's like oh they've figured out a way to interact with him
1: well it's this weird moment because it's like is that double take it's great i mean dustin hoffman is amazingly skilled at little things like that. Um, And it's, it's also amazingly shot. I mean, this is a, this is a film that actually doesn't really put bows on a lot of stuff. There's not a lot of like, uh, or, or uh, hang a lampshade is what I'm trying to say. This is a film that doesn't really hang a lampshade on a lot of stuff. So actually they're like pretty far back in the frame when Hoffman does that. It doesn't cut to him be like, Ooh, right. Um, And it's also this moment where I think, Bernstein's legitimately um, has a moment where he's like, is Bob Woodward a master at this or is this guy I've been partnering with a fucking Republican? You know, he just has this moment where he's like, wait, what, who is this guy? Right. And it, it, it goes back to how it helps that Robert Redford who can be a somewhat, actually a quite opaque actor um this is actually one of his least opaque performances i think but he's a quite he can be a quite opaque actor um and that actually really helps here because there is this question of like wait who is this guy i've gotten into bed with that i'm doing these articles with is is he a republican or is he a manipulative genius um and that's what makes that moment so so fun because one of the things that it's setting up is that over the course of the film, the two men sort of switch places, right? It be, the movie begins with Bernstein wanting to run a story without sufficient confirmation. And it ends with Woodward wanting to run a story without sufficient confirmation because common sense says it was Haldeman, right? And, and it's actually Bernstein who has to convince him that they need to report it out more. And so they've learned so much from each other that they swap over the course of the movie, which is just an immensely satisfying arc to put in for the two men.
2: Yeah. And, and, and it, it allows them to flex different muscles because that's one of the things that I love is I love waspy integrity, but then I love a little bit later on when they're in their office with their colleague, Sally Aitken, um, where he just flat out says, did, did you, did he say that because he want to, to go to bed with you? Like, and he just asks it and it's almost, there's, there's another double take there because Hoffman's like, like Hoffman is Bernstein goes, what that, like, is that me? Like, did I just speak out of his mouth? Because right. that's what I would have said. Um, and it's sometimes in those moments and you do it, I think you do it in all sorts of partnerships, you know, um, you know, whether it's, a, you know, I, I've sometimes, I've sometimes heard, um, heard me come out of my wife's mouth sometimes would be more forthright. I'm like, that's not what you would usually say. That's a me thing. I'm the idiot. (laughs) You're, you're the waspy integrity, leave the blustery idiot to me. Um, so you have your Woodwards and your Bernsteins and all of your relationships, I feel, but it's, it's just one of those things that I just love that uh, growth is so critical. But also, as you said, this movie does not hang a lampshade on anything at every opportunity. It is. How do we convey this using cinematic language? how do we use it with space? How do we use it with light? How do we use it with staging? And it's not, nothing is there. And so you see these guys in their posture, in their, in the way that they relate to one another in all the times that they're in the frame together versus at the beginning of the film where they're never in the frame together or they're very distant themselves. But it's just that, that growth is so, is so great. It's, it's, it's why I think it's a a big part of why this is endlessly rewatchable for me is that arc that is not gilding the lily in any way shape or form.
1: Yeah, I mean you could imagine making this movie like,
2: like a, buddy a buddy cop movie. movie. Yeah. Right. right. It has that, a lot of the same structural template bits as a buddy cop movie.
1: Totally. Uh and that what you'd have to do is heighten it. What you'd have to do is you know, uh, Bernstein, I'm tired of justifying your bullshit antics to the commissioner. You know, you have to sort of make that vibe. And then, and then, you know, he uh, kind of rigs and Murtaugh type thing or whatever. And then they come to recognize the usefulness of each other's ways, um, which is actually kind of what's going on in the movie. But it it really dials that energy down as much as possible. So it's there. It's the arc. It's what gives the story tension. Um, I think that's brought out a lot more than it is in the source material because William Goldman is a is a brilliant is a particularly in the 70s was such a brilliant dramatist Um, uh, uh, and and it provides some structure to the story but it's not played up so much that it feels tacked on and tawdry into glitzy which i think is is really really important and i think that's an important thing in actually all three of um Paculous films during the 70s which are three of my favorite movies of all time i should say um is that you know parallax view that movie is insane it is totally insane the journey that happens in that movie but there's a deadpan to it and a sense of restraint that is um really unexpected and makes it land so much more you know like uh uh, and 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 you just see all of that paying off here as well uh isn't when's the first i forget in all the presence because i was watching with my wife um and we suddenly were like Oh, that's the first moment of music in the whole movie, and we're like twenty minutes into the movie. Yeah, it's, right? or, yeah.
2: Well, yeah so it's it's David Shire's music, like one of the first times it does pop up, is in the Library of Congress scene. That's like one of the, right. the one of the first moments of music, and then a couple of the uh, uh, when they receive the list of names for Crete, that's another sort of key music cue. Where, but but for long times, the music makes a decision. You know, and Shire as the composer make the decision to be like, I'm going to stay the hell away from this. That's like yeah, totally naturalistic and as clear as possible.
1: Which is like in um, or or you know, what should be maybe the film's most ostentatious gesture, which is the slow zoom in from the split diopter shot when Redford's on the phone and there's the people gathering behind him, and it's this like masterful. Act of even just memorizing the text there is this kind of like everything he's managing there is really brilliant. If you've ever worked with actors, what he's actually doing in that scene is incredibly technically difficult. It's very hard. Uh, and, uh, but it's played just like. Hey, I'm just a guy on the phone. And that that sense of naturalism, which, sorry to talk about every other minute in the film, but this one, let's circle back to this one. That sense of naturalism, that sense of like, we're just in this guy's house and it just looks like this guy's house. And there's a double take, but we're not highlighting it. And this guy is clearly tortured, but we're, and, and you know, so much so that he looks like he has an ulcer, but we're we're going to make all of that clear just through how he's holding his body in space and how we've lit him. And that he's in shadow and that when we first see Meredith Baxter, she's probably the
2: most brightly lit character in the whole movie. Um, you no, know, it, in the it, middle of the day, it's in the middle of the day. It's a beautiful day. Other than maybe uh, the Bernstein's contact in the, in the park from the phone company with his uh, right, tart, right. with his tartan flask or um, the very beautiful secretary that's on top of the Q hotel in Washington, which now no longer exists there. Like maybe they're the two most brightly lit moments, except for this with Debbie Sloan's face. But one thing I wanted to touch on just really quickly was talking about Goldman being a dramatist. And I just think it's really foundationally um, something to appreciate about the way that a screenwriter knows how to narrativize, like narrativize real life events because the two major things that people take away from this is like, hey, it's kind of like a buddy cop slash detective movie. And William Goldman reinvents or if not invents the very concept of it with Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid a few years earlier and wins best you know wins an Oscar for best screenplay, which then is copied and copied and copied and copied and copied ad nauseum throughout the rest of film history, but also the that that structure of going if we just have this relationship this tension that's going to help us just navigate the waters of this whole movie, and then the next part is just the ethos of follow the money, so that's not, never present in all the president's men, the book, but Goldman's flair of like, what is this about? H- how do these guys get become like dogs with a bone? It's follow the money. And I think that those, those things, just that perfect balance of like, these are the structural, you know, this is the scaffolding of this whole movie is this buddy cop relationship and then following the money and how these guys navigate the waters with the, with those considerations is, is just so, cl- so crystal and perfect.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's actually structurally a very weird movie. If you just, if you just, like the fact that it ends when they nail, when they think they've nailed Haldeman or actually it doesn't even end with them nailing Haldeman. It nails, it ends with them knowing that in the future they will. It's a very strange thing. And then the movie just kind of, t- you know, ends. Uh, just very abruptly it's like okay now some headlines because you actually know the story ended um and it's all these little scenes between two or three people then contrasted with these large-scale images of washington which is my hometown i'm from washington dc um uh so some of the debates about those stories in the post are really funny when they're like well is home rule really going to happen this time and you know uh um so you know, uh, as they drive nearby my house, my parents live near the Kennedy Center. So that's like that intersection I know really, really well. I've, um, uh, uh, anyway, so so it's it it's and it's a just very weirdly put together movie, but the craft of it is so great, and the sense of dramatic action, the sense of um, what Goldman nails is that the fundamental component on an atomic level of dramatic action or of narrative action, I should say, is causality. That something causes something else to happen and you line all those dominoes up and then you knock them over. And what he did when he got to follow the money is he figured out how to organize those dominoes and so you get the conversation with uh the two con- the convers the two conversations with jane alexander with the great amazing scene between woodward and bernstein in between it uh and then that knocks over this next domino which is sloan but then it starts setting emotional these very strange things that wind up taking up most of the rest of the movie uh because of sloan's sort of recantation that happens later on. Um and so so you know it, it it's really smart how he puts it together. Which, which
2: is not they don't bury the lead with that. But it's so like I love what you said. It's in every gesture that he's the kind of guy that's gonna do this. He's the kind yeah, of guy that's yeah. gonna recant it just based on the way that he's acting, even though he says things and they confirm it he's like, well I didn't say that to the grand jury and they're like, oh but it's not not untrue. <laughs> it's right. not yeah untrue, exactly. They never like, asked me and you're like Woo. Oh my goodness. Um...
1: Yeah. And you know, when he says like, uh, I'm a Republican, I love Nixon, you know, in the next minute, he basically talks about how he wants to exonerate the president and that's why he's doing it. And so you, if you look backwards, which is the other fun way to run narrative action, right? Like uh, for want of a nail, a shoe was lost to kind of run it backwards. You get from his recantation to actually that moment. It's actually this moment, this conversation sets up everything else in the rest of the movie i don't know that it's the movie's climax though because part of what's so brilliant about the screenplay is that every moment sets up everything else that happens in the movie there is nothing in this movie that isn't vital it's a long movie i mean it's two and a quarter hours long it's not the longest movie in the world but it's not a short film um and uh uh but there isn't a moment in it that feels extraneous because every single thing pays off somewhere or sets something else up
2: and so um you
0: really see that the pace is
2: blistering isaac it's so like that's it's so fast it feels fast every time you watch it
1: yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, Bernstein is so hepped up, right? Because he wants to get through it. As we said, you know, when they sit down with uh, Sloan, they're both so hepped up, they can't even like finish a sentence. You know, they they just need to get him to say uh, who the bag men were, who was in charge of the money, how the money was dealt with. You know, will he say it? Will he not say it? Um, and even though You know, some very large percentage of that film's original audience had read All the President's Men and knew what was going to happen in that scene the characters don't know what's going to happen in the scene. And that's why it works is because we're really looking at, you know, Dustin Hoffman really wanting to know who controlled the money and, uh, I mean, who controlled it, who controlled it and, and how, how was it, how was it doled out? And, and, you know, in that moment,
2: as uh, that's you, the be- you feel, 89, that em- 89 episodes in, it's the best Hoffman I've heard so far. I'm, I'm going to call it. It's the best. It's Isaac's <laughs> got the best Hoffman so far. There's the challenge of the rest of the guests. Amazing. I don't have Hoffman. Amazing. It's
1: the best ones so i Uh I appreciate. It. Well, you know, for the method book, I've watched quite a few of his movies from this from this period. I'm actually, I'm about to move on from. I, I've not exactly been doing it only one actor at a time because sometimes things aren't available or you know I'm waiting for the DVD to come in the mail or whatever. But it's about time for me to circle away from De Niro and on to and on to Hoffman. So I've been I've been watching more of them. So it was it was good to watch this. I'm watching Little Big Man next or rewatching Little Big Man next. You know, making my way through. I I love Marathon Man. I love Marathon Man. And actually, I spoke to a friend of William Goldman's about this because I had a theory about it. And it turned out to be true, which was uh, I was like the 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 thing that the idea he had first was Lawrence Olivier wandering through the Diamond District being freaked out by all the Jews surrounding him. I was like, that had to be where it started. He was like, yeah, that is where it started. I asked Bill about it. <laughs> So I was like, yes, I knew it. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, uh, anyway, I don't know how we got off on that tangent, but, but but you know, Goldman Goldman's work during this period, I'm actually reading a book of his right now, uh, The Season, which is about the theater season of 1968, um, uh, in which he drops a lot of science about how to write a play. I mean, there's a lot of stuff about how to be a good dramatist in that book. So um, one of Australia's
2: great satirists working right now, um, is a guy by the name of Mark Humphries, who is just absolutely hilarious. If you haven't, if you haven't found him, he's in, I think he's in episode 10, seek him out. but, it's so funny that William Goldman has written sort of the seminal books on movie making and the set, you know, with the big picture and what lies did I tell? And, um, and, and all those sorts of like, there's, he's just got a raft of compendiums of, you know, great writing on cinema and the business as well as um, you know, uh, you know, what it's like to be a working screenwriter. And then the season, that was one of the things that was really interesting talking to Mark is like, Mark is a big theater, theater geek. And he was just like, he wrote my favorite book ever on the theater called it's actually, sorry, he's the sixth episode of the series, but it's um, called the season. And so, yeah, it's really interesting to hear that he like goes from movies one year and then he's like, I'm going to occupy a whole year called the season in theater. And people still find it to be one of the best books ever written of like an account of what making theater is like.
1: Almost everyone I know who's read the season says it's their best their the favorite their favorite book about theater, the best one maybe ever written, which is just remarkable, right that he could sort of have mastery in so many different forms. I will say if you're going to seek it out, you should absolutely seek it out. It's a great book. but um he was during this time very uncomfortable, made very uncomfortable by homosexuality. There's a real, homophobia that runs through the book that he wrestles with a bit um uh, uh and since gay men make up a huge percentage of the audience of uh broadway theater goers um uh you have to wade through a lot of that stuff that it's it's particularly foregrounded in the book's first chapter which takes place during a judy garland concert so um you know like like it just forewarned is forearmed it's actually taken me a few tries to get through it for that reason um but it he really understood how to put a story together he understood how story beats connect and how dramatic action worked and how actually you can embed all of the meaning uh, in the narrative in just plot incident in what happens in the character's choices. And because of that, you don't actually have to spend a lot of fucking time talking about it. And I think that's the thing that sets apart a movie like this from a lot of ways you would tell a similar story today is that, that, that sort of embedding of meaning in action and incident and the trust that the audience will pick up on what you're doing. There's there's that's almost the ethos.
2: We, funnily enough with meth this is what I talk about with the in, intersections of our interests is like that's the ethos of method acting. And that's why I like someone like Michael Mann is a I I've in, at times like referred to him as a method director because I'm he he creates space for people to be enforced into a method level of performance even if they weren't intending to have that approach you know you work with a De Niro you work with a Pacino you might have those sort of method you know the foundational elements of what they're doing or different actors will take those different approaches like Michael T. Williamson is a guy that's very much like that too Will Smith kind of jumped into that method when he was doing Ali but it's 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 I I think exactly that is so I relish it so much when people just stop saying things and convey things. And it drives me insane in contemporary films. The more that things are overexplained, the more immediately tiresome it becomes for me as a viewer, because I'm just like, I don't, the measure of your success as a screenwriter and as a filmmaker is not for you, for every character to, you know, and this is an expository movie, right? Everyone's talking about lots of things and lots of detail, but the actual emotion of the, of the thing is, so loaded in every bit of performance every bit of staging all those things so yeah it's it's really funny i i think that that's you know being able to convey what 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 they're trying to get across versus saying it is just everything for me when i'm viewing something
1: right totally you know it's interesting because i do think that a movie like all the president's men is not possible without the method even though actually Jason Robards is not a method actor he trained at Adda Robert Redford is not a method actor he trained at Adda Dustin Hoffman is one of the great method actors of that period um he studied with Lee Strasberg but he also studied at Pasadena Playhouse you know um uh but the values the the right right no no because because the no i mean the the values of the method of 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 Stanislavski's what back when it was called the system, the values of the system and of psychological realism, which involve, you know, inhabiting the character, not judging the character, um, thinking in a very active way that everything you say has to have a purpose behind saying it and a thing the character wants all that stuff. Uh, um, and that revolution in how we think about acting was complete by the 70s. So even if you didn't study with Lee Strasberg, you still had to perform in a way that, that had that sense of psychology to it. Um, uh, You know, it's it's absolutely unthinkable that you could make all the president's men during the height of the studio system in the 30s, for example. And I actually love studio system movies. I'm not putting that down. I actually think you know it, it's a it's a great great time period for film. Um, uh, but but it's a different approach to acting that is much less about demonstrating people thinking, but that that just works differently. Um, and so I I don't think you could make it um then and now it would all be brits doing american accents uh uh and you know who knows i mean i mean i will say you know uh, uh, you know australians are much better at it than brits in general i my hat goes off to you people they're, they're your people The uh no but but the weird thing is is because of this movie this particular kind of ethos has remained within films about journalism specifically. Spotlight is not a very exposited movie. It is not a movie where they, like there's a couple conversations about the ethics of what they're doing and their fears about it, but they feel like they totally naturally flow from character. There's a very, all. there's all those very all the president's men shots where sort of Leah Schreiber is all the way in the back of the newsroom doing his job, right? And then when they finally finish what they're doing, he's like, okay, get back to work. You know, it, it has that similar deadpan because all the president's men happened, right? It is in some ways the, like the citizen cane of journalism movies in that it set a template of how you're supposed to approach those stories. Um, and I think, you know, even though I actually like the post quite a bit for what it is, that's why a movie like the post actually feels kind of weird because it, it, it it's, it's much more Spielbergian. Valley.
2: Yeah. It's an uncanny Valley. <clears throat> you're watching it, you know, that for, for folks who don't know the term, Um, when you're creating digital effects or especially um, virtual people, there's a moment where you get to realism, 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 and then something gets so real that it's so close to being real that it's imperfections freak you out. Like your brain says, that's not real. Like we were speaking earlier about the limbic system. There's something in the back of your brain that says that's not real. It's fake. It's going to kill you because basically, <laughs> you know, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, our bodies are just geared to that reaction. And so uh, that's what I felt like watching the post. Like I, again, I've come to appreciate it more. I've watched it a few more times, but my most immediate an urgent reaction was like, this is so like, I had become already, and this is years ago, already a massive fan of all the president's men and watched the movie countless times. And so when I was in that newsroom, I, everything just felt off. It felt like it felt completely, completely strange. There's a, um, you know, it's, 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 it's like, I, I don't know. So someone was looking, looking at all the president's men through a telescope and describing to someone what that would look like. And then they created it in this space. It's just, yeah, very, very strange.
1: Yeah. But you know what I like about it is in a weird way, I feel like it's Spielberg doing what you're doing with this podcast. He's looking at this movie that he loves and he's like this movie and this story really speaks to today. And I happen to have this screenplay that connects to the same story. And so we're just going to get this done as quickly as possible because this story needs to be told. And I admire that. I don't know that it's a movie that'll stand the test of time or what. I don't know that all movies need to do that. I think it spoke to a very specific cultural need in that moment. And I admire it. I also think it's one of Meryl Streep's best performances in a while in that movie. But but yes, it is not doing what the template that all the president's men set up, which is that you dial back, you are restrained you um, present information and you expect the viewer to do the work to connect it most of the time. And then when you absolutely have to, you insert a little exposition, you know, and, and you see that live on and have huge influence in David Simon's, the wire, I think is probably like a really clear example of it. Spotlight's a clear example of it, you know, Um, uh, and all of that's happening again in this scene there is no no one comments ever on woodward and bernstein's relationship in the entire movie there's never a discussion about it period it lives in dustin hoffman looking at him like what the fuck you're a republican you know it lives it you know it lives in those moments um and they just expect that you're gonna watch it and you're gonna pick up on it and you're going to get that um in part i think because they expected that you were going to watch it in a dark movie theater and so you know i think we shouldn't underestimate how um the commercial environment in which these films are released absolutely shapes their aesthetic that there's expectations that uh pacula could have of what the audience was doing that informed the choices he's making now Um, the interesting, the negative is someone's probably looking at their phone while they're watching it. But the positive is they might rewatch it like 300 times and do a podcast where they dissect every minute of it. Um, and so that leads to a very different series of, of choices about how movies are made that can be good or bad. It all depends on how you use it.
2: Well, look, I don't think I could end this episode better than having compared myself, being compared to Spielberg and to David Simon, um, uh, <laughs> in, the, in the most, in the most uh, fascinating and honourable way possible. Isaac, this has been an awesome chat. Thank you so much for being. Hey,
1: I'm so glad we got to do this. The next time you do a movie minute by minute, I am there. Yeah, uh, look,
2: I'll just give everyone fair warning because a few people have asked. The next show that we are doing uh, in a more extensive way, but it's not going to quite be minute by minute, but I promise you, you will get the same essence of what we're doing there is uh, David Fincher's Zodiac, which Roger... His greatest uh, film. greatest film. Roger Ebert called it the All the President's Men of Serial Killer movies. It wasn't our intention necessarily to just do that, but I think what, what I'm finding is with, you know, with Heat, with All the Presidents, with uh, Increment Vice, which is hosted by Travis Woods, is that some of the films that we're being drawn to are these like that are, are having existential crises about some things. And so it feels like Zodiac is, is just that obsessive professional. So I'll definitely have you back for that. I'm excited to talk more about the method. Once the book goes, thank you so much. Um, I'll, I'll definitely, that's, uh, as, as a bit of a, um, an acting geek, I'm very excited to read, um, um, your book. Um, that's coming out next. Is it next September? Did I read that right?
1: Um, I don't think the publication date is final right now. Um, Either it'll be out in the last quarter of 2021 or early winter 2022. So look for it in 12-ish months.
2: In 12-ish months. But between now and then, wherever you get your podcasts, Slate's working podcasts, lend me your ears. um, I can strongly recommend. Um, And uh, look, mate, it's just been an absolute treat
0: to talk to you.
1: Oh, thank you so much again.
0: What a guest isaac butler was i uh, forgive my voice extremely croaky getting over it as you can hear in this outro um isaac is on twitter uh, at parabasis p-a-r-a-b-a-s-i-s you can find him there and also at slate.com forward slash shakespeare or on the working podcast you can also look into him there um his new book the method as he said is coming out next year now um uh, later in the year guys thank you so much for listening at at PM pod on twitter atpm.com if you want to find the show that just leads you back to oneheatminute.com if you want to follow me one blake minute on both twitter and instagram and uh just if you want to support us there is a donation link in the description of this podcast or it's tough we all know how tough it is subscribe rate review take a few moments to review us it helps the show it helps find other listeners for the show along the way We love you. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode very, very soon. Wow, we are motoring along.